Welcome to the New Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia and beyond. Hello and welcome to the New Arab Voice. It's Friday the 25th of March. My name is Hugo Goodridge and I'll be your host today coming to you from London. This week, the New Arab's Nick McAlpin explores the Israeli response to Amnesty International's apartheid report and examines how they're using online advertising to spread accusations and misinformation. There is an awareness of the cynical nature of the Israeli authorities with regards to trying to hide its crime of apartheid by using the allegation of anti-Semitism or supporting terrorism or other outlandish claims against a range of human rights organisations. It's not just amnesty. And then Lise Mouvet dives into the rock climbing scene in Jordan and the country's first domestically produced climbing guide. The idea came to me when I was in Spain studying and I used to go to climbing, uh, climbing areas. And when I go there... I, the first thing is I want to do is to buy the book. Like even though there's a lot of information online, it's different when you have the book because you have everything in front of you, in your hand. We need this for Jordan. But first, a quick look at the biggest headlines from the past week. The war in Ukraine continues to dominate global events. Russia is continuing to assault various targets across the country, with the southern city of Mariupol witnessing some of the worst of the violence. On March 16th, Russian forces bombed a theatre in Mariupol, where more than 1,000 civilians were sheltering. Eyewitnesses at the scene have claimed that around 300 people were killed in the brutal attack. The head of the UN Human Rights Mission in Ukraine, Matilda Bognor, has said that the persistent Russian bombing of civilian areas amounts to war crimes. Further north, near the capital Kiev, Russian forces have become bogged down. Morale and supply issues are reportedly taking their toll on the Russian forces, who are also facing persistent counterattacks by the defending Ukrainian forces. Reports from the country have claimed that Ukrainian defenders have recaptured several areas west of the capital. While fighting continues on the ground, world leaders are pursuing diplomacy and issuing numerous warnings to the Russian government. NATO leaders met this week in Brussels for an emergency summit where the US President Joe Biden hailed the unity of the NATO nations. Putin was banking on NATO being split. My early conversation with him in December and early January it was clear to me he didn't think we could sustain this cohesion. NATO has never, never been more united than it is today. Putin is getting exactly the opposite what he intended to have as a consequence of going into Ukraine. We've built that same unity with our European, the European Union and with the leading democracies of the G7, in the G7. He also warned President Putin that there would be consequences 
if chemical weapons were used by Russian forces. We would respond. We would respond if he uses it. The nature of the response would depend on the nature of the use. Ahead of the NATO summit, Turkey called for ramped-up efforts to achieve a ceasefire in Ukraine and vowed to continue its, quote, mediation and facilitation work between Moscow and Kyiv. NATO member Turkey shares a maritime border with Ukraine and Russia and has good ties with both. While supporting Ukraine and criticising Russia, Ankara has also opposed sanctions on Moscow and launched mediation efforts. Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe and Anusha Ashuri have returned to the UK after being freed by Iranian authorities. The pair had been held as political prisoners in the country for six and five years, respectively. UK Foreign Secretary Liz Truss confirmed that with diplomatic assistance from Oman, London and Tehran had, in parallel, resolved a £394 million debt dating back to the 1970s and the era of the Shah of Iran. Speaking at a press conference, Nazanin expressed her frustration at the failure of numerous British governments to secure her release. But I was told many, many times that, oh, we're going to get you home. That never happened. So there was a time that I felt like, do you know what, I'm like, no, I'm not even going to trust you because I've been told many, many times that I'm going to be taken home. But that never happened. I mean, how many foreign secretaries does it take for someone to come out? Five. It should have been one of them eventually. So now here we are. What's happened now should have happened six years ago. Countries across the world and international bodies have expressed their dismay after the Taliban ordered girls' secondary schools in Afghanistan to shut on March 23rd, just hours after they reopened. Turkey said it regrets the Taliban's announcement that high schools in Afghanistan would remain closed for girls and called on the hardline Islamist group to allow education for all. The US joined the condemnation. We join millions of Afghan families today in expressing deep, deep disappointment and condemnation with the Taliban's decision not to allow women and girls to return to school above grade six. State Department spokesman Ned Price speaking. The head of the UN's educational organisation UNESCO also strongly criticised the Taliban's actions, labelling the move as, quote, a major setback. The Afghan Education Ministry offered no clear explanation for the shift, even as officials held a ceremony in the capital Kabul to mark the start of the academic year, saying it was a matter for the country's leadership. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad made a controversial trip to the UAE on March 18th, which marked his first visit to an Arab country since Syria's civil war erupted in 2011, leading to hundreds of thousands being killed in brutal regime assaults on opposition areas. In a statement posted on its social media pages, the Syrian presidential office said that Assad met with Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al Maktoum, Vice President and Prime Minister of the UAE and the ruler of Dubai. The two discussed expanding bilateral relations between their countries. The visit is one of the clearest signals yet that some Arab states are willing to re-engage with Syria's once widely shunned regime, 
although many Arab states, led by Qatar, remain opposed to normalising Assad. Syria was expelled from the 22-member Arab League and boycotted by its neighbours after the conflict broke out 11 years ago. For more of the latest news and analysis, head over to the New Arabs website. But I am here today to say that baseless attacks, barefaced lies, fabrication on the messenger will not silence the message and an organization of 10 million members the world over. This is Amnesty International Secretary General Agnes Gallimard defending her organization on February 1st, the day it released a historic report finding Israel guilty perpetrating apartheid against Palestinians, a stance long held by Palestinian civil society. It is the cruelty of the system, the intricate, evolving administration of control, dispossession and inequality, the incredible, detailed bureaucratization upon which that system is predicated, its sheer banality, and at time absurdity that has taken my breath away. Condemnation from the Israeli state was swift, very swift. In fact, the day before Amnesty was set to publish its report, the Israeli Foreign Ministry issued a press release. It claimed the documents, quote, extremist language and distortion of historical context were designed to demonise Israel and pour fuel on the fire of anti-Semitism. It further called on the human rights organisation not to proceed with publication. The Israeli Foreign Ministry also took its fight online. Yeah, so I was Googling Amnesty International when I noticed that the first search hit was an advert that was basically accusing Amnesty International of promoting anti-Semitism through its recent report about Palestine. This is Mark Owen-Jones, Assistant Professor of Middle East Studies at Hamad bin Khalifa University in Qatar. He is an expert on propaganda, disinformation and digital authoritarianism. And so what this meant is someone clearly had paid Google to smear Amnesty International. The New Arab Voice confirmed the Israeli Foreign Ministry placed the ad using advertiser identity information that was publicly available on Google. The advertisement linked through to a web page belonging to the ministry. It was a very crude and what looked like a hastily constructed website. It was just a few lines basically accusing Amnesty of supporting the destruction of Israel, which Amnesty didn't state, of course. And it also claimed that Amnesty International were anti-Semitic. And then below that, it had a bunch of other links to other news articles or websites that also condemned Amnesty International or praised Israel. But how does Amnesty respond to allegations of anti-Semitism and accusations that it aims to, quote, eliminate the state of Israel or deny its right to exist as the nation state of the Jewish people? I think the Israeli authorities' response pre-launch, during and after has been hysterical, dangerous and counterproductive. And it's notable that 14 of the leading Israeli human rights organisations have condemned the Israeli government for this outlandish response. Groups like Betzalem, Yeshdin, Breaking the Silence, Combatants for Peace, a huge range of groups. This is Christian Benedict, a crisis and tactical campaign manager for Amnesty International UK, 
His work centers on Palestine, Israel, and Syria. There is an awareness of the cynical nature of the Israeli authorities with regards to trying to hide its crime of apartheid by using the allegation of anti-Semitism or supporting terrorism or other outlandish claims against a range of human rights organizations. It's not just Amnesty. They particularly use this against Palestinian human rights organizations. You also get Israeli organizations being branded an enemy within. These are dangerous. These are putting targets on the back of human rights defenders. Christian said Amnesty is anti-racist and is wholly opposed to anti-Semitism. He also suggested Israel's tactics in responding to his organization's report are damaging beyond Palestine and Israel. It's dangerous as well for the Israeli authorities to conflate them as people within the Israeli government, as politicians and civil servants, with the wider global Jewish population. It's a ridiculous and dangerous tactic. And it's quite right that a lot of progressive Jewish individuals and organizations have long been calling out to the Israeli authorities to stop doing this, to take responsibility for the laws, the policies and the practices that they have developed, in particular, those laws, policies and practices that discriminate against Palestinians. But for Christian, the Israeli authorities' attacks on amnesty also reveal something about their stance on international law. And as they know, we are looking at what they do with reference to the Apartheid Convention and the Rome Statutes and other applicable international law. If they want to say that international law is inherently anti-Semitic, then they can say that. They should say that if that's what they believe, because essentially that's what they are saying. Following the Israeli state's harsh response to Amnesty's apartheid report, it has now become one of the organisation's most read and downloaded reports ever, according to Christian. But not everyone is prepared to face accusations of anti-Semitism. I guess for some individuals and organisations, it can have a chilling effect. It can stop them wanting to even work on these issues. And, you know, I guess there's an element of that within the wider NGO sector as well, that it's just too much trouble to even get into this issue of supporting Palestinian human rights because you're going to get attacked, you're going to get smeared. A reluctance to engage is perhaps unsurprising given the horror of anti-Jewish hate. Mark Owen-Jones again. We have to remember that, you know, accusing someone of anti-Semitism is almost like accusing someone of being a paedophile. It's something that no one ever wants to be accused of because obviously anti-Semitism is a terrible thing. And so frivolously using the term is kind of devaluating the term, but obviously no one wants to be tarred with that brush. So it's probably an effective, or at least it was or has been an effective means of trying to silence dissent. For Mark... The fact the Israeli foreign ministry could place an ad calling Amnesty's report anti-Semitic on Google is of concern. Despite the allegations in the ad, the search engine giant told this podcast the ad in question did not violate its ads policies. Just because something is within a company's policies, it doesn't mean those policies are sound, right? It's a kind of redundant argument because what it shows then is that Google's policies for advertising are not fit for purpose because no company should allow a government to use their platform to spread propaganda that comes at the expense of people's lives and livelihoods. Mark also believes the ad having been permitted on Google search shows that big tech firms are motivated by profit. Crucially, I think it highlights an element of political bias. I don't think any regime would have been able to do that. I doubt the Burmese regime would have been able to take out an advert criticising a report that was documenting abuses against its population. I think the same would be true now if we saw Vladimir Putin trying to do the same thing. It just wouldn't be acceptable. But 
why does he feel a similar ad from the Myanmar authorities would have been treated differently? I mean, I think big tech companies, they naturally align themselves with US foreign policy. And that's not necessarily to blame them. I mean, I think they should be doing more about human rights and morality. I think everyone should. But big tech companies are just going to follow the lead for the most part of their government. And if the government has a friendly relationship with a particular state, whether it's Israel, Saudi Arabia, then those companies are going to feel absolutely vindicated in doing business with them. It's only when the political relationship between Israel and the US is soured that Google then will seriously consider, for example, not allowing them to advertise. This is the nature of it, unfortunately. Google sent us this reply. We are committed to providing a safe and positive experience for all our users and do not allow ads or destinations that display misrepresentations such as clickbait, shocking content or dangerous or derogatory content. We have robust and wide-ranging policies that all our advertisers must follow in order to advertise on our platforms. We have reviewed these ads carefully and found they do not breach our ad policies. Mark said he is not aware of Israel employing a Google ad campaign like the one it used on Amnesty, against the human rights group before. So, why Amnesty? Christian again. I think there's a couple of things. One is that, from their sense of the Israeli authorities who are watching this, is, hold on a minute. It's not just Palestinian human rights organisations and civil society. It's not just Israel's leading human rights organisation, Betalem, and other groups like Yeshdin. It's now Human Rights Watch and it's now Amnesty International. There was a pattern going on here. There was a momentum going on here. And we need to stop this before it gets any further. While Amnesty's findings are similar to Human Rights Watch and Betzelem's separate 2021 reports, there is a key difference. Amnesty's research found Palestinians suffer under Israeli apartheid, not only in occupied Palestine, but also within Israel and as refugees abroad. And I think that's alarmed a lot of people in the Israeli authorities who were, I wouldn't say content, but could manage criticism with regards to the treatment of Palestinians within the OPT. But I think when you start talking about discrimination within Israel proper, that makes a lot of people nervous. And not just the Israeli authorities, by the way. You know, there are people why then the Israeli authorities who are not comfortable with this assertion and these findings. For Christian, this isn't a bad thing. You know, there are a lot of people in Israel who are living in a bit of a bubble, I've got to say, and hopefully this amnesty report is confronting people with a stark reality that they are also living within a system of apartheid. And you may not always see that if you live a privileged existence. If you are benefiting from a system of inequality, you may not always see that. A lot of people do. A lot of Israeli people see it. And there has been a lot of support for this report. But I think going back to the Israeli government, I think that's one of the worrying things that it's generating this conversation. And they are seeing that you're going to see a momentum towards more acceptance that what Israel is doing is committing the crime of apartheid. While Amnesty's report is heavily critical of the Israeli state, it also makes a series of recommendations for ending the system of apartheid. For example, the organisation calls on Israel to stop its 15-year-long blockade of the Gaza Strip, which has had a devastating impact on Palestinian civilians living there. But Amnesty has not had the opportunity for dialogue with the Israeli authorities, according to Christian. 
they haven't wanted to engage with us, including in the development of the reports. And that's a standard for Amnesty when it's developing research that we engage with relevant governments in question. We did write to the Israeli authorities and there was still an open invitation to the Israeli authorities to engage with us. They haven't wanted to at this stage. Let's see how things develop down the line. But at the moment, they haven't wanted to. They've been more focused on trying to smear amnesty and essentially frantically call on other states to push back against amnesty as well and smear amnesty. The Israeli reaction hasn't been limited to words. There has been a move towards stripping amnesty's Israeli wing of its tax-exempt status. A spokesperson for the NGO's Tel Aviv branch said no measures have been taken against it as of March 13th but added that the Israeli parliament was considering sanctions. Christian said Amnesty has faced numerous issues from Israeli officials over the years, including regarding its tax status. It's not unexpected. There was a risk assessment developed before this campaign. Amnesty Israel staff were part of that process. And, you know, we're keeping an eye on it. You know, we've got security teams who keep an eye on these sorts of things. And we are raising these issues with other states and with UN mechanisms as well. Nothing at this stage has happened yet. You know, there's a question for the Israeli government in terms of how far do they want to go in maintaining this authoritarian system of repression and domination against Palestinians? How far do they want to go to maintain that? Allegations of smear campaigns against critics and efforts to silence opposition have not been limited to major human rights organisations. Pro-Palestine activists have also found themselves in the crosshairs. Shahid Abu Salama is a Palestinian from Gaza and an associate lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University in the UK. Shahid said multiple complaints were made about her, beginning soon after she created a viral Twitter thread in December 2021. She was defending a student at another university who faced accusations of anti-Semitism over a placard reading, Stop the Palestinian Holocaust. It is unknown who made the complaints against Shahid. So then I wrote... I understand why a first-year university student used Holocaust when thinking of Israel's repeated bombardment of Gaza or the killing of a Samoni family or the Wabsha family. Maybe she thought she'd garner European sympathy for Palestine by evoking the Never Again slogan. However, I wouldn't use such a politicized word, often used to justify the racist state of Israel. Its use, as this shows, distracts attention from the Zionist practices and crimes of settler colonialism and ethnic cleansing against the Palestinians. Shahid included three hashtags, Save Sheikh Jarrah, Save Beta and Save Gaza which she, and many others, regard as ongoing cases of ethnic cleansing against Palestinians. The associate lecturer added, There is more moral clarity now about past events, a clarity that I wish existed for the Palestinian people, for what we experienced since 1948 as ongoing Mecca, and others called gradual genocide. But since then, moral dissonance has ruled over our seemingly post-colonial world. The result is a hierarchy of human rights, of lives and of deaths, according to where the oppression is taking place, perpetuated by who 
and falling upon whom. Shahid received an outpouring of solidarity on social media from users of the hashtag in support of Shahid, and she strongly rejects any suggestion that her defence of the student's sign was anti-Semitic. There wasn't a denial of what happened to the Jews in that statement. There wasn't a denial to the Nazi crimes against any of the persecuted people under Nazism. Shahid addressed concern about use of the word Holocaust directly. Holocaust was used in conjunction with the Armenian genocide as well, repeatedly. Is that anti-Semitic? On February 2nd, 2021, less than a year before the first complaint was made against Shahid, her university adopted the controversial International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, or IHRA, working definition of anti-Semitism. She considers this definition to relate more to defending Israel than combating anti-Semitism. To understand this, you only need to know that 7 of 11 examples listed under the IHRA definition are to do with the Israeli state. One of them says calling Israel a racist endeavor is potentially anti-Semitic. So basically, under the IHRA definition, I am, by definition, anti-Semite. And this is unacceptable and outrageous because this is the definition of our experience under Israel's settler colonial regime, an apartheid regime that has been just condemned by one of the world's leading human rights organisations, Amnesty International. Before it was accepted at Sheffield Hallam last year, Shahid had worked to oppose the IHRA definition, which she believes is racist and aims to silence and demonise Palestinians. She fought alongside members of the University and College Union, UCU. And I was then one of the leading students and working with the UCU in order to oppose the IHRA because I understood that people like me are going to be most vulnerable. And guess what? My case literally proved that the Palestinian academics and students are going to be the first victims falling for this IHRA political tool. Shahid said the first complaint about her was considered against her as a student rather than a staff member. According to Shahid, despite the IHRA definition being used, the university cleared her. However, in January, Shahid was temporarily suspended from teaching. Although reinstated a week later, she said she had refused to return to her posts because her reputation had been tarnished, something she argues her university's actions fed into. And I demanded that the investigation must be dropped. A week later, I meet again with human resources of Sheffield Hallam University and I present my case against the allegations that were mounted against me in the name of anti-Semitism. And once the university heard my story, they immediately said, let's end that once and for all. And I was just assured that the investigation is not going ahead and that I am basically clear. But Shahid wasn't alone in her fight. She received assistance from the European Legal Support Centre, an organisation that helps pro-Palestine activists. But that wouldn't have been achieved without the amazing and international show of solidarity that spoke up in my support. 
and this network was very varied and very grassroots. I mean, I'm thinking, of course, like of so many segments, whether the students, whether the community from Palestine to the UK, whether the UCU, whether also the ELSC. Now, Shahid is working alongside her local UCU branch to call for a moratorium on the IHRA definition and a public apology from her university acknowledging the harm, including mental harm, she has suffered throughout the affair. But Shahid says she continues to face attacks. And it's, it's horrifying. I shouldn't go to campus and feel unsafe. I shouldn't feel unsafe in my home. I shouldn't feel unsafe anywhere, wherever I go. And this is serious. I'm receiving pollies and trolls trolling me on all social platforms and my email threats as well. And these cannot be taken lightly. We are talking here about a human case that is probably more important to Sheffield Hallam than its own reputation. And it would probably actually serve its reputation if they finally stand at the right side of history. The New Arab Voice was sent this by Sheffield Hallam. We have a duty to fully consider any concerns or allegations about students or staff that are brought to our attention and have robust policies and processes in place to help us do so. As a university, we uphold the principles of academic freedom and freedom of speech within the law. We are proud that our staff and students come from a diverse range of backgrounds with a wide range of views and beliefs and are committed to creating a welcoming and inclusive culture for all. The targeting of Shahed is not isolated. Pro-Palestine activists, particularly those of Palestinian heritage, are facing increasing attacks with accusations of anti-Semitism being frequent. Amnesty International's apartheid report is considered a leap forward in the fight for human rights in Palestine and Israel. And they intend to continue this work despite efforts from the Israeli government to dismiss the report. They can shout and scream all they want. All it does is show them as a state which is trying to entrench systematic racism, is trying to entrench apartheid and is trying to silence human rights defenders. If that's the position they want to take, then fine, that's the position they take. It doesn't really affect our strategy and we'll keep focused on our findings and our Uh, advocacy objectives going forward, the Israeli authorities can, can shout all they want. So historically, climbing guides for Jordan were written by foreigners for foreigners. And as a local team, we wanted to create a comprehensive guide through which we can share the beauty of climbing in Jordan with everybody. This is Osama Qubain, a Jordanian climber for 15 years and a member of the Jordan Climbing Federation, which was established in 2018 to make climbing safer and more accessible in the country. Although Jordan is one of the world's great rock climbing destinations, Few Jordanians are aware of its amazing climbing potential. Rock climbing as a sport came to Jordan through foreign people exploring new rock, new lands and new people. Of course, there is a long history of Bedouin rock climbers that have established Bedouin routes uh, going up pre-solo, up the 
mountains uh, in their surrounding areas, including uh, Petra, Wadi Musa, Wadi Ram, and Shobak. But of course, the Bedouins do not have any equipment or ropes or harnesses like the foreigners did. Once the foreigners came, they were able to establish harder routes on more vertical walls with uh, know, more sporty techniques. Inferno, Lionheart, the Hajj. Since the 1980s, foreign climbers have been drawn to Jordan's famous red sandstone cliffs, which are located in the southern desert of Wadi Rab. But while climbing attracted more and more foreigners to Jordan, the sport remained little known locally for years. Abdul Qadir Dubbas witnessed the early days of Jordan's climbing community. Since there was no indoor gym, most people discovered climbing outdoors. I loved it from the first time, and on the same time, my same friend was a guide at Adventure Tour Company called Tropical Desert, and I started to go with them on weekend for um, outdoor trips during the summer, and I just love it was my first experience in nature and just going through canyons and abseiling going through waterfalls and just being there and it was an amazing experience still 2010 it was still a new sport for people thus the energy was quite exciting because it was new and adventurous and the community was quite small the community has greatly expanded since according to Zaina Fakhreddin who discovered climbing in 2018 uh, when I started, uh, no, it wasn't popular at all. It was a mix of both, I would say, expats and some locals at the time. But it was nothing as big as it is now. Now I see a lot more interest in the sport, especially by uh, younger kids, which is incredible. A lot more locals as well. And I, there's definitely a huge difference. The opening of Jordan's first climbing gym around 2010 drew a wider audience from the capital, including more women and children. A few years later, the most experienced Jordanian climbers got together to support this budding community. The Climbing Federation, it has been an idea for a long time. Marwan Maita, whom you just heard, is one of the founding members of the Federation. Basically, it's to have uh, a body or an organization with which we can do many of the projects to teach climbing, to spread the sport of climbing in Jordan, to raise awareness about climbing. I think in Europe or maybe America, the culture is already there. They know sport climbing is safe and it's a fun activity for the family. But in Jordan, maybe it's not still the idea about climbing. The Federation organized training sessions for children and established Jordan's first regional lead climbing competition. In lead climbing, a climber will attach the rope as they ascend rather than in top rope climbing, where the rope is already in place. Federation members spent hours maintaining climbing rods across Jordan to make them safer. Recently, they helped open an indoor bouldering gym in the north of Jordan to let people in other parts of the country discover the sport. But one of their most ambitious projects is to write Jordan's first locally produced guide of climbing rods in Arabic. The idea came to me when I was in Spain studying and I used to go to climbing, uh, climbing areas. And when I go there, I, the first thing is I want to do is to buy the book. Like even though there's a lot of information online, it's different when you have the book because you have everything in front of you, in your hand. We need this for Jordan. Existing climbing guides focus on Wadi Rum, 
while many local climbers would like to have information about other parts of the country, especially cliffs in the north, which are closer to Jordan's biggest cities. Most people, when they hear climbing in Jordan, they go to Wadi Rum, and uh, it's an international known spot, but in the north, it's actually not so much known. The idea is to give the climbers um, a source which is reliable. So you have some websites which give information about routes, but sometimes it's hard to follow these websites. The audience is for all the climbers, uh, international and national and regional. Yeah, basically it has like all the locations and how to go from one spot to the other, how to approach to the cliff and things to take in mind or what equipment to bring. Gathering all existing knowledge about the climbing routes is a huge process. Some routes are known only by local guides or the climbers who established them. Others are recorded online, but the information is not updated. Once completed, the guidebook would be Jordan's first Arabic language source of information on climbing. We want to put many of the classic climbs which are in Wadi Ram to also put them in Arabic. So you can find many sources online about those climbs, but no sources in Arabic. Work is still in progress to collect all the information contained in the guide. In the meantime, the climbing community continues to grow, and Jordan is earning increasing recognition as a hub for climbers from the region. On March 25, Amman's Climbing Gym hosted the second edition of its lead climbing competition drawing participants from Palestine, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, and beyond. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced by me, Hugo Goodridge, Nick McAlpin, and Lise Mouvet, with additional help from Rosie McCabe. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back in two weeks' time, Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter accounts, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.